Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices that we take for granted are out of date, illogical, or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room, and I'm here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a couple of F-bombs thrown in for good measure. Pilates Elephants is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher who really fucking knows your stuff. Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants. I am here with Julie Driver, and we are going to talk about do we underload our clients in Pilates? Hey, Julie. Hi, Raph. <laughs> Great to be here with you. Thank you for asking me. Um, so, yeah, so introduce introduce us to you. Who are you? So I'm Julie Driver. I've been teaching Pilates now for 22 years. I'm not quite sure where those 22 years went. Um, and I'm based in London. I was a senior faculty member for one of the largest teacher training companies in the UK for about 10 years before setting up my own education company. So I specialize in equestrians as well. That's my passion. Horses are my, after my husband and my children, clearly. Um, so that that's me. I work with teacher trainers. I work with everyday bodies and I work with equestrians from the everyday rider like myself right up to um, the elite and do you work from home? Do you work online? Do you have your own space? Do you go to I've people's got, homes? I've got my own studio at home in the basement. So I have two reformers, towers, uh, ladder barrel, you know, everything. Apart from I don't have a full-size Cadillac because I've got a really low ceiling. And, um, and then How do you go getting all that equipment down the stairs? Uh, a lot of swearing. I think one day there was even some tears. And uh, my <laughs> husband, my nephew... <laughs> My nephew's twenty six, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's it's a really narrow stairway, and you, and uh, and it's an you know it's an old Victorian house. So the rest of the house has got these beautiful big high ceilings. So I keep saying to my husband, "Can we just move everything upstairs to you know where our lounge and sitting room is, and then move our living space downstairs?" Mm, and perfect. he just rolls his eyes and, and swears and back at me and says, "No." <laughs> I kept working on him. You'll get there. So, I, also, I, tra I travel to people's yards as well. So I, I work uh, now that I'm back on my feet after having broken my foot last year. I also travel to yards mm -hmm. uh, to work with my riders. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're here today to talk about, well, originally the, the question was around um, something called pre-Pilates, which we discussed. And then we kind of thought, well, maybe not everyone knows what pre-Pilates is. So we maybe better to just advertise it as do we underload, which I think is kind you know, it's kind of the same topic. But basically, I think the question uh, that we're going to discuss, and I'm not sure if we 100% agree on this or not, and we'll find out as we go through our conversation. Um, <laughs> the question that we're going to discuss is basically, do we, you know, do we mollycoddle our clients, you know, on, on average in Pilates? Do we not progress them, you know, quickly enough through, you know, more vigorous exercises, um, uh, you know, do we just, um, yeah, do we underload them basically? So tell me, tell me, tell me um, I, I guess I, I want to preface this because you're, I, I can't remember. I've got a terrible memory for some things and a great memory for others, but this is one thing I've got a terrible memory for. I can't remember that we've had another UK based uh, guest on the show before. 
So if if we have, and if you're that person, I apologise profusely, but um, I'm going. You know, for me, this is the first time. <laughs> Maybe my Alzheimer's is kicking in. Um, but uh, you know, so can you? Because I was having a discussion with you off. We were having a discussion offline uh, a couple of days ago, and I was quite surprised by some of the differences uh, that you were sharing about the Pilate, the UK Pilates industry relative to what I'm, I've experienced here in Australia. And I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the US industry. I've talked to a whole bunch of people in the US. I feel like I've got a reasonable sense of how that works over there. Um, but yeah, so tell me, uh, what is what's the kind of normal way or the, you know, the most common way of teaching Pilates in the UK? Like it's, it, you know, in Australia, it's a group reformer studio. We've got like 12 reformers, 14 reformers in one room. And it's a very athletic style of training. People will do a lot of simple moves, you know, some of them based on the original repertoire, things like teasers are ever popular, you know, long stretch, you know, control back, control front. Those are like staples. Um, but then there's lots of just lunges and push ups and squats and splits and, things like that. So that's, that's now that's not the only way we teach it in Australia, obviously, but I would say that's, you know, I'm just guessing here, 80, 90% of classes in Australia at the moment, that's the way Pilates is taught. That's the way, you know, people think of it. Um, yeah. So what's, what's the norm in the UK? The UK is a very different, um, model to that. Um, so I, I predominantly, think teachers in the UK are mat-based teachers. And this is, I joke with a lot of teachers and say that um, the UK is a bit like the Galapagos of the Pilates world. We've grown up in isolation from America where there is a studio-based system and predominantly teachers learn. So sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to jump in with the Charles Darwin <clears throat> reference there, which is the, Galap the Galapagos Islands were uh, this place basically where they're very isolated in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I think somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you know, some coconut seed landed there 50,000 years ago and, you know, and some some kind of finch, you know, landed there 50,000 years ago. And now we've got 99 kinds of finches that are unique to the Galapagos Islands because they've evolved, you know, within just a very, very small closed ecosystem. So that's when you say like the UK is like the Galapagos, it's, it's like this sort of isolated ecosystem where weird variations of finches have, have evolved. Exactly. Thank, thanks, Raf. <laughs> um, yeah, because when I trained 22 years ago, there, there wasn't a lot of options. There weren't many studios. And I took a mat course because that's what I, at the time, thought, mat, thought Pilates was, because that was what I had experienced. I'd only experienced mat Pilates. So I trained to be a Matt Pilates teacher. Then I was really, really lucky that I was taken under the wing by one of the people who did have a fully equipped Pilates studio, whose name was Gordon Thompson. Amazing, lovely, lovely man. So I learned the apprenticeship style of Pilates. That I was on the floor every single day, working with the reformers, working with the tower, with, with towers, working with Cadillacs, everything. And I learned that way. But that was really unusual in the UK at that time. And what happened was, um, and I want to say, I want to make it clear that I think this is a good thing that happened because it opened up Pilates to a lot of people. It meant that you could have a church hall at the end of your road where you had access to Pilates, to mat Pilates. So it made it very accessible. But what it also did was it made it that teachers didn't 
necessarily then go on and explore the apparatus. Hmm. Right. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of similar in Australia. Like, you know, when I first trained, it was the early 2000s as well. So 2004 is when I trained. Yeah. And that was you know, right at the start of, you know, there wasn't really a group reformer thing in Australia here. And it was the assumption that you start with Matt and then if you're super keen, you go on to the rest of the apparatus and work in a fully equipped studio somewhere. But basically, Pilates exploded here in the 90s with a lot of uh, mat work. You know, Murray Windsor, you know, kicked it off with those infomercials <laughs> in the early 90s. And, you know, everyone was crazy for mat Pilates and it was you know, group mat Pilates everywhere. And then, you know, if you got really into it, you went to a fully equipped studio and did and, – and the reformer was – you know, one of the pieces of equipment there alongside the Cadillac and the barrel and whatever, but you didn't have like a room full of reformers. It was just like you moved from the Cadillac to the reformer, to the barrel, to the chair, to the whatever. Um, but then, but most, but the kind of entry point for most people in here was, was mat work, group mat work. Yeah. So I think, I think what happened was it was Pilates in the UK is predominantly mat based. So the public's perception of Pilates is also that Pilates is predominantly mat-based. And it also has a, um, I think it's seen by the public as being very, um, and breathe in and lift your arm and exhale. It's not seen as being an athletic discipline. And therein, I think, lies the problem because a lot of teachers, when they are doing their Pilates course, don't qualify being able to teach the full 34 exercises. Their course will be predominantly this term of pre-Pilates exercises, exercises that are not the full 34, but they will lead your client to the 34. But and I you're referring should, to the, the because um, I'm going to guess like the, I mean, I don't know if you're listening to this, you know, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but um, I'd, my guess would be most Pilates instructors in Australia wouldn't know the book Return to Life, might not even know that Pilates was created by Joseph Pilates uh, and don't know that there are 34 exercises in the original Contrology repertoire that Romana increased to 37 by adding the series of five, you know, straight single leg stretch, straight double leg stretch, crisscross, um, whatever the other the, the other one was. Um, yeah, so uh, so – the 34 were the original exercises that Joseph created in his – those were the original, you know, ones that he published in his book, Return to Life Through Contrology. And pre-Pilates are, as I understand it – well, you tell me, what, what are, what's pre-Pilates? I think if we were to create a Pilates dictionary, pre-Pilates would come as I, – I think of this predominantly – again, I'm using the word predominantly a lot. I'm really sorry – um, mostly that word pre- predominating in your <laughs> lexicon. <laughs> mostly mat-based exercises that are not from Joseph's original work. So they would be things like lying on your back, rolling the legs to the side, lying on your back, taking the legs over your head. Things that are teaching technique, teaching skill sets, teaching movement but they're not they are building blocks to creating larger global movements so they're very uh-huh. they tend to be more isolated movements yeah so the things i'm going to use that 
elephant in the room of the neutral spine is that can you stay neutral and open your left leg out to the side? Can you stay yeah. neutral and um, open your right leg? Can you lift your leg into the air? Things like that. So they are skill builders. Yeah. I, I mean, I learned those. So I, I learned those in my stop Pilates training as knee floats, knee folds, toe taps, you know, those are the names that I learned. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, there might be different names in different places, but uh, yeah, they were, when I learned those in stop Pilates, they weren't called pre-Pilates. They were called, I don't know, the, the beginner exercises or something like that, like level one or can't, I can't remember what they called it. Mm. But um, that was like, you were given a, a sheet and said, oh, you know, the client needs to master you know, these exercises before they get to do, you know, you need to master, you know, knee folds, lie on your back with your knees bent, feet on the floor, let your knee fall three inches out to the right, keep your hips still. You know, you needed to be able to do that before you're allowed to do, I don't know. And, and again, I'm, I'm not sure I'm 100% right on this, but let's just say for the argu- sake of argument, before you're allowed to do footwork on the reformer or before you're allowed to do, I don't know, the hundred or something like that. <sighs> Yeah, it was the same it, it, with the school I learned that unless you were able to lift both your legs into the air safely in inverted commas, then you couldn't do double leg stretch or single mm. leg stretch. You know, it, it was the, the those exercises were held back from you, which just I, I don't. don't and so, and so, what you, is are you saying that you know if I walked into you know the average church hall in the average village, you know, or city or wherever, you know, I'd be most likely to see people doing Pilates that looked like that. Yes. Huh. That's, that's, and me, that's I, I want to make it very, I want to make it really, really clear here. I am not criticizing any teacher that teaches in this way, because if that is what you have been taught and that's what you know, and that is what is working then that's fantastic because if you are making a change for for your client and your client is feeling better, moving better, able to get on with their activities of daily living, that's great. I think the issue arises when you have somebody who is perfectly capable of doing more, but you they are restricted because the teacher hasn't the skills or the knowledge of more deeper exercises to progress them. Mm. Because if all you've learned on your teacher training course through no fault of your own, because this is what the teacher training company gave you, that's, that, that's, that's a sticking point. Mm. There's going to come a point where your, your client is going to be pretty much at the same level of Pilates as you are. So unless you keep progressing yourself, you're going to struggle to progress your clients. And you don't mean, I assume, you don't mean that uh, to teach Pilates, you need to be able to do all of the advanced moves yourself. No, no, but you need to damn well be aware of them. Right, you know, you need to know what they are. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, Yeah, I I guess I want to echo that maybe from a slightly different angle, is uh, which is to say that if you're listening to this, pretty much by definition, in my mind, you're one of the good guys. And, you know, whatever way you teach, what, whatever you think of yourself as classical, contemporary, you know, whatever, um, you know, we love you and we respect you. And this is a, this is, this is a place for, you know, uplift and, you know, mutual respect or as my, 
when my daughter was in, very young in the first grade of primary school, they used to sit around and do this um, mutual respect thing. They had to, you know, the six-year-old kids or whatever, and they had to show mutual respect. And and they, she called it neutral respect because she didn't know <laughs> what the fuck it was, you know. And so it's just, it's, to me, that's just a hilarious example of kids mouthing platitudes that they have no clue what the fuck they're talking about, but it's like, oh, the adult's going, oh, mutual respect. These kids are nodding going, neutral respect, neutral respect. What the <laughs> fuck does that mean? Anyway, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it, you're right. And there aren't, there are no bad guys because at the end of the right. day, if, you, if what you're teaching is helping people, then that's great. It's absolutely fantastic. But there comes a point where I think we, we, we mustn't stop learning. We have to right. keep learning. And this is the, 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 if you're teaching pre-Pilates because that's all you know how to teach, because that's all you've been given, then I think that's unfair because I think the, the teacher training schools are, I'm going to be real, I, I, I'm putting that cat among the pigeons here. I think they're letting you down. Because you, sh- I, I believe that you should leave a teacher. I can see your eyes. Don't roll your eyes. <laughs> uh, I think you should leave a teacher training program able, understanding the 34 from return to life. You might not be able to do them all. You might not um, be comfortable with them all, but you should have an awareness of them. You should have learned how to use those pre-Pilates building blocks to help your clients achieve them. Because that's, to my mind, is what pre-Pilates is there to do. It gives, it helps make those 34 or 37, if you're doing the full series of five, it helps make them accessible to people. So you can teach variations, you can teach the modifications you want, you can teach what the fuck you want, but know where, where you're eventually going with the client. I, I think I'm going to agree with you on essentials there, that like if if we zoom out and say, uh, and and sorry, I just want to finish what I t- was starting to say before. Before I totally distracted myself and you know went off on a tangent about <laughs> neutral respect. That um, you know, so if you're listening to this, you're one of the good guys, and and I think the 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 whole kind of reason for existence of this show is to to create a marketplace of ideas where we can you know openly discuss ideas and and look at the science you know as objectively as possible, and not we don't judge you if you do it a different way or if you believe a different thing. It's like you know, if so, if we disagree with an idea, you know, we don't disagree with the person; we just disagree with the idea. No, not so. All. all right, so you, you um, know what? Just, just, just to jump in on that, I have no issue with so if somebody teaches an entire hour of pre Pilates because that's what their client needs. That's fantastic because they they are working with the body in front of them. It's it's when that's all you teach. I think then there has to come a point where. We going back to the, what the, your original question was is the loading. Mm. If if all you're doing with somebody is knee floats um, to give them your your stock name, th- then where are they going to go? Where where are they going to do ten years of that with you mm. as a client? Mm. Mm. Well, even in stock, I was taught. You know, we were we were taught that there's a certain spring. Te- you know, so footwork's on three to four springs. And so presumably you start on three springs and then as you get stronger, you go to four springs one day and then there you stay for the next 10 years. You never, never increase it. So I think that even when we move beyond pre-Pilates, there's still, I think, you know, in a lot of the traditional systems, and by traditional, I include the contemporary crew in that. Um, I think there's a, a long and serried tradition of underloading people 
you know, not progressing people. But I, I do want to just um, talk to your uh, point about the 34. Um, so in our in our certification course, we teach those 34 control exercises and we actually use Joseph's book, Return to Life, as the, it's the only required reading for the for the course. And so every student, by the time they graduate, has a very well-thumbed copy of that book and has physically done every single exercise in there. Now, we're the same, we have the same philosophy as you where it's like, well, we don't care if you're rocking doesn't look, you know, <laughs> like the picture in the book or <laughs> whatever. Um, and if, you know, some people just can't physically do some of the things like jackknife or whatever it might be, totally fine, not a problem. But you have to have at least had a go at it and, you know, figured out a modification yeah. that works for you or, or whatever yeah. so that you you can work someone else up to it who does, who their body does like doing that movement. Um, so it's not about you performing the exercises, it's about you having experience, you know, moving through the exercises and finding whatever your ideal shape is in that, in that, in that exercise. But so we, we teach those exercises. We advocate those. We try and teach them as closely as possible to the instructions in the book. We, you know, try and stick really closely to Joseph's original set of instructions. Uh, we use as much archival footage as we can, um, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, so on one hand, you know, in one sense, I, I, deeply agree with with what you're saying there and I also agree with uh the concept of um you know needing like I think exercise needs to be progressive fundamentally speaking as an exercise physiologist um you you know you you the fundamental one of the fundamental principles I teach you in sort of day one of exercise science degrees progressive overload like you have to keep adding more load over time Otherwise, people don't get stronger. So I, I agree with both those things. But where I disagree is, I, I and maybe this is, I misunderstood what you said here, but or maybe we've got a fruitful disagreement, um, is that I don't, I don't think that you have to know those 34 to be a good Pilates instructor. I think, you know, I mean, I imagine um, there's a shitload of Australian Pilates instructors out there who might have never seen a copy of Return to Life through Contrology and their entire experience as a client and as an instructor has been in a reformer studio and all. And and they've probably, you know, a lot of them have never done like those 45 original reformer exercises, like, you know, all of those kind of more esoteric ones like horseback and, you know, breaststroke and backstroke and all of those ones that sort of like most people don't teach in a group class very often. It's like they've done a lot of things like flying splits and planks and, lunges and push-ups and things like that uh, and maybe a few teasers and things thrown in but so i guess i have a i guess i have a more i have a quite a what i consider <laughs> a, a progressive view of pilates whereas i think like well if you call yourself a pilates teacher i kind of think you are one what are your thoughts did, did we just have a disagreement been listening that's all <laughs> um if you have taken a course that at the end of the course you do have a qualification that calls you a pilates teacher you are a pilates teacher excuse me <clears throat> however in the uk at the moment there is debate about whether if you don't have the full 34, you should be called a mat-based teacher, not a huh. teacher. All right. So now we get into this question of 
industry industry standards and so industry you're, standards right so you're saying that there's some kind of industry body or government committee or something that says or is considering yeah. saying okay in order to call yourself a map based players instructor you have to meet you know a b and c criteria absolutely what do you think about that you know what i think for such a long time the uk has been based a certain way around Pilates mat. We had industry standards set up in, uh, I think it was late 90s, maybe early 2000s, to try and combat the issue of standards within Pilates teachers. And for a while it worked. But what actually then happened was you had these standards laid out that anybody could then, it's called mapping, could map a course to. And when Pilates really, really boomed and it became clear it was, you know, a money-making machine, you had then lots of companies who created their own Pilates teacher training courses. And these these courses can be created by somebody who has very little understanding of Pilates themselves. Um, but as long as they map and they match the criteria that are laid out by these standards, they could set up a teacher training school. So the floodgates opened, and we have now we have a lot of map-based teachers in the UK, which is wonderful. Again, this is, this is not taking away from anybody's teacher training that they've had. That's not what I'm trying to do or what I'm trying to say. But you need to be clear about what you've learned to teach. I think. And I've had experience of lots of teachers doing, buying in good faith what they thought was a really comprehensive mat work teacher training. They've completed the course, gone off, and then realized that they actually have very little Pilates in the course. And and so how does that come back to the to the industry standards? Because the, the standards weren't specific enough. Uh. So now we're in a situation where we, we've got groups of people meeting, trying to go, well, how, how, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. But then I, again, it's going to create an even bigger problem because... Yeah, I think it will. I think it... I so mean, it's almost... It's almost you know, standards are great because they create a standard, but then any anyone can meet that. As long as they meet that standard, you could have you could have been a taxi driver, you know, you could have been, um, you know, a marketing director for a telecoms company, say, you know, and you just suddenly go, you know, what? I'm going to set up a Pilates company because it's going to make me a shitload of money. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I'm with you that standards are not good. I'm, I'm fairly strongly against standards. But um, I think for different reasons. I think uh, if, well, if there were no standards, right, just so it's complete Wild West, you know, no rules, anyone could do anything. <laughs> oh, fuck, yeah. Well, what's to stop the taxi driver from setting up a Pilates training company? Nothing, right? So I don't think the standards you know, make it easier for a taxi driver to set up a Pilates training company. I think, I mean, and yeah, correct me if I've missed something there, but I, I, what I, the problem I have with standards is they're basically – there are two things. One is that they can become extremely arbitrary 
because, well, who makes up the standards, right? Who defines yeah. the standards? And guess what? You get a people, what do they do? Just if it's the government or whoever, they invite a bunch of industry people together, right? And they say, you know, let's define the standards. So guess what? The standards end up looking like the fucking people who design the standards as training programs, right? Precisely. <laughs> Right. So it becomes like, oh, well, by definition, my training program is perfect and that's what that's what the standards are. Oh, your program is not the same as mine, therefore yours doesn't meet the standards. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so we end up having that because right, it can become very kind of parochial, I think. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but anyway, that'll do. Thesaurus <laughs> me if you've you know, got a better suggestion. But um, – uh, political, I guess, is probably a better word. Yeah. Um, the other thing is in Australia, we actually have standards defined by the government, right? So they're not defined by industry experts; they're defined by the government, and the government define. And the government, we have. Uh, so we're in Australia. Our training company is called a registered training organisation. So we can hand out, we can confer government recognised qualifications for people here in Australia um, that are recognised by law. And in order for us to have the authority to do that, we have to we're regulated fairly strictly by the Australian Skills Quality Authority, which is a government department. And they now they've actually improved somewhat lately, but we've had plenty of experience with them of basically regulating everything but the teaching quality. You know, they so they regulate your ability to do your paperwork and to, you know, they make sure you've got yeah. all your privacy policy correct on your website. <laughs> And your marketing yeah. has the Asqua logo in the correct position. You know, they're very, very strict on certain things, but they don't, they never ask whether the students have got a job afterwards or whether they're satisfied with their learning or they don't ask the employers, oh, how are the students from Breathe Education? Are they good? You know, it's like, I think that, and I think they have improved actually in recent years. So, um, you know, but I think there's an inherent problem with government oversight because it just tends to be focused on bureaucracy mm-hmm. and, and things that are irrelevant to the actual quality of the of the learning. And I think there's an inherent problem with industry-based oversight because it becomes very political and it's just about like, well, who gets to define what the standards should be? And then there's just inherently a conflict of interest there. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So, all right. So we wildly agree that industry standards are probably not a good thing. Although, you know, I mean, I think that industry standards are a good thing in some industries. Like I want my, my heart surgeon you know, to be a board certified <laughs> medical doctor. You, know? like, you don't want it to be a Pilates teacher then. <laughs> no. Well, I don't care if, if he or she teaches Pilates on the side, but um, I, wa- I want that person to be a, you know, to have gone to medical school, you know. And, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. and, um, you know, and I think so in, in, and in something like medicine, uh, and you know, I'm not on the inside of medicine, so I don't really know this. But my my perception from the outside, what I know about guidelines and how they work, is well, if you're a surgeon or an emergency room doctor or whatever, or a paramedic, you are under legal obligation to provide best practice care as defined by guidelines. You know, whatever the current best cancer drugs are, or heart attack drugs, or stroke antithrombotic agents, or whatever, you have to give that best practice treatment. You can't just go, oh, I'm just going to give some random shit that I've felt like giving you for whatever reason. So I think there, you know, the, you know, the standards and oversight can provide a real value. And I think in the airline industry, you know, that's another good thing. It's like, well, you have to give maintenance to the aircraft every X number of hours or whatever. But then again, I mean, I think even in the airline industry, it's like, I think, well, it's pretty easy to look up on the internet, like how many crashes, how many, you know, 
um, passenger deaths per thousand hours of flying for each airline and just go with the one that has the fewest deaths. You know, like the market could regulate that to a certain extent, I think. You see, I'd, I'd go the other way. I think if they've had the fewest deaths, they must be due crash. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how fucked up my brain works. <laughs> um, all right. So, so, you know, this back to pre-Pilates, you know, we're doing our knee floats and, and I've, I'd, I've done all this, like I've taught this stuff and there is a place in my view for this stuff. Like I, I've just, I, I'm still rehabbing my shoulder. I'm basically just, it's just strength training now, but it's uh, four months ago, I had double shoulder surgery, uh, rotator cuff, full thickness rotator cuff repair and a biceps tenodesis where they, uh, they slice off the biceps tendon from the supraglenoid tubercle just above the shoulder socket there. And they drill a hole in your humerus and your arm bone and stick the biceps tendon inside the humerus through the hole and then they drill a second hole and they pull it out through the second hole and they put a little sew a little button on it and so it can't get pulled back through the hole. So it's a fairly significant surgery to your you know, I mentioned so, my son's teddy bear in a really similar way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well it's I think it's fascinating. Um but you know so I've had a I had a double shoulder surgery on my right shoulder February the eighth it's now June the fifteenth. So we're like February, March April, May, June, so four months, four months and one week um, post-surgery. So I've, I've pretty recently been through that process and there's definitely a place for, you know, passive arm swings whilst keeping your trunk still, you know, in the first sort of two weeks after surgery, you know. So I can definitely see how if you had hip surgery or back surgery or knee surgery or whatever, knee folds, leg floats, toe taps, you know, all of those things have a place. But in my view, the place they have, and, and I can also see, you know, outside of post-surgical, there might be like people with, I don't know, again, I'm not really an expert on Parkinson's, but maybe someone with Parkinson's or some other kind of neurological conditions, spinal cord injury, something like that. So I can see where those exercises could have a very useful, you know, place in a progression for somebody, but the operative word there being progression, right? So like, you know, day one after my shoulder surgery, I was... Standing, leaning forward, my 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 unoperated arm leaning on a bench, and just kind of wiggling my torso back and forth to sort of let my my arm doing pendulums. You know, basically the arm, the surgery, the, the the injured arm, totally relax and just swinging it around very gently with just moving my torso. So that's kind of like the shoulder equivalent of knee floats, right? But it's like, well, if I was still doing that now, four months later, that would be a big fucking problem, right? <laughs> Four months later, I'm bench pressing 90 kilos. I'm doing pull-ups with 16 kilo um, kettlebell around my waist, you know, and that's not everyone wants or needs to progress that far or that fast. But, you know, four months after you do your knee floats, you shouldn't still be doing knee floats. Yeah. I, yeah, abs- I'm totally with you on this. So I, um, in 2008, I had a very serious skiing accident. Um, I basically, my left leg was rotated 180 degrees below the knee. Um, so tip fracture, spiral fracture, the surgeon said he stopped counting at 18 fractures in my, uh, fibula and my tibial plateau. I feel like I'm competing with you here and I'm not, I'm just trying no, to explain. You win. <laughs> There's like, no competition. Mine was worse than yours. <laughs> it definitely was. You win. And they, they, they were amazing. They managed, they told my husband they might have to amputate, but they managed to save my leg. So again, like you, I, I, had to learn to walk again 
And um, I remember my, I couldn't put my own pants on. I couldn't get out of bed on my own because um, I was in hospital for three weeks. I had because uh, I had fasciotomies as well because I got um, compartment syndrome. So, so that's my mom, where the, the muscle, the calf muscle generally swells up um, and the, the fascia surrounding the calf muscle uh, doesn't swell. And so the calf muscle becomes basically ischemic, like it doesn't get enough blood supply because it's it's squished within that. Um, fascial bag and so the fasciotomies they go in with the scalpel and slice the fascia open and it's fucking painful it is the it's unbelievably painful um and um in fact this is quite this is totally off topic it's quite funny so they were driving me down the mountain from um my i had my accident in whistler in canada and by the time we got to vancouver i was they had to stop halfway because i was in so much pain and the paramedics took my husband to one side and went, is your wife a heroin addict or has she ever been a heroin addict? And my husband went, no. And they said, well, she's had so much drugs and it's not touching the side of her pain. And it's then when they got me down to Vancouver and they opened up the strapping around my leg and my leg, I, I didn't see my, I was off my tits on morphine, but apparently the nurse and my husband's cousin who were there passed out because my leg just literally swelled and swelled. And the surgeon just turned to my husband and said, right, you need to know that I'm, we're going into surgery now. And it was like 4am in the morning. And um, I'm going to do my best to save your wife's leg. But if I fight, I think the term he used was viable matter. Mm. I, uh, um, non-viable matter will amputate. So my poor husband had to sign to take my leg off. Um, but they didn't, they saved it. Hooray! And, um, but the point I was going to make was that my mum had to move in with us for three months to help because I just, I was so immobile. But what we did was my husband moved my reformer and a chair, and I've got a tower on my reformer, into the bedroom next to ours. So I would, I was on a, <clears throat> on a walking frame. So I would hobble because I couldn't put any, I, I was non-weight bearing for about nine months. And I would hobble into the next door bedroom and I would get on that reformer and I would get on my tower and I would bang out a cracking teaser. I would do everything I could that was non-weight bearing on my leg because I could. And it was like, you know what? I can't, you know, I'm really struggling to get to the loo on my own, but I can, I, I'll do what the hell I can. And I yeah. had a, um, a physio who had come twice a week to the house for 90 minutes. And my mum would have to leave the house because I would be screaming because it was trying to get the fluid and the, the the mess out of my legs so it could heal was it, all the from the compartment syndrome and one day my mum said to me you know what well, maybe maybe don't do just give give your morning rehab a miss and I just said to her but but then what then what do I do if I stop now I'll never start again I have mm -hmm. to keep going mm -hmm. because if you the minute you stop your rehab you're fucked and you do, you have to keep progressing people. So um, I was told I'd have a permanent limp and it would take me a year to walk again. I didn't limp and I was walking within seven months. But that was because, like you, with yours, I just pushed and pushed and went. And, and what I did in my head was I, I said, every time this hurts, I am one step closer to it not hurting. And that's the way I got through it. I don't know how you how you got around your rehab, but that is the the, the way I had to think of it. And then last year, I'm so accident prone, um, when I broke my foot. <laughs> so last last August, I shattered my calcaneus completely. Um, so was I've that skiing now. also? No, it was jumping down off monkey bars. <laughs> You've reinforced my, my decision never to go skiing, by the way. 
Yeah, and don't play on monkey bars either. They're really dangerous. Okay. So the okay. same the same thing happened. It's, you know, you've just you've just got to you've got to do the work. If you don't put in the, the time and the effort, you never. And, and that's what really upsets me when I see people in the physio department when I go, and they're the same people have been there on the journey with me, and they're and they're moaning that they're not mobile. And I want to say to them, do you do your exercises? Do you do you do them? Well, well, maybe the they do. Maybe the physio's just given them three sets of ten with a therabit with a pink theraband, and they help them to just lift and breathe and lift an arm. Right, and they haven't <laughs> progressed them. And two years later, they're still doing the same, you know, theraband three sets of ten. And it's like maybe they've been doing them diligently, you know, quasi religiously every day. But the physio and no, no knock on physios, exercise physiologists, Pilates teachers, you know, everyone's everyone's does the same. Um, maybe they just haven't been progressed, you know. Um, I'm, my wife had uh, a bank art repair in her shoulder, um, so the labrum detached. Um, uh, she had multiple dislocations, and this was in 2016. She had it repaired. And uh, I was an exercise physiologist at that time, but exercise physiologists aren't trained in acute post-surgical rehab. We do, you know, once they, once they come out of that acute phase, the physio sees them when they're in the sling, and then we see them when they get out of the sling. Um, and so, you know, I was like, okay, go go to the physio, do your thing with the physio, I'll take over six weeks or whatever. And at six weeks, she was weak as piss because she hadn't done any load. You know, for those six weeks, it's just been passive mobilization, massage, passive stretching, and like, you know, tiny one kilo hand weights to do like wrist curls with. But it's like they hadn't loaded the shoulder at all and it's like she was like miles behind where she should have been and yeah so it's i think and that physio was highly recommended too but just didn't load her shoulder at all and so i think that's mm-hmm. i think it's a, i think it's a it's a endemic problem in the whole health and rehab industry is we just we under load now it is possible to overload somebody who's recently had surgery or some major kind of acute injury. So it definitely is a thing that you need to understand the tissue healing times and be respectful of that. But, you know, for most of us, if I'm teaching Pilates, Matt Pilates at the local, at the local church hall, or if I'm teaching in a Pilates student, I'm not going to have someone walk in who just had shoulder surgery two weeks ago, and I'm not going to be working on their shoulder. Like, unless I'm a physical therapist, that's not my, you know, that's not my um, domain. So presumably those people who are doing pre-Pilates might be, I'm guessing, I don't know, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing they're kind of like older adults maybe, um, you know, pregnant clients, people who come in sort of like that where we as Pilates instructors are more concerned that we might injure them basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I had a class of, I have a church at the end of my road and I had a Monday morning class in there and it was older ladies and we did um, probably half the class was pre-Pilates because it is really, really useful for people. There is a place for it. There's a massive place for these kind of exercises. But then the the second half of the class would be um, more functional stuff, you know, getting them up off the floor, getting them doing standing, loading, you know, standing them up and that kind of work because that's what they need. You know, they, they need that age. They've got to do weight bearing stuff. Yeah, well, I would challenge. I would challenge that. Like, do they need pre Pilates? I think, you know, I've looked quite a bit into older adults as part of the degree that I did. Um, I read the ACSM guidelines. I read a fair bit of research on it, 
you know, the gold standard for older adults is uh, you know, load, resistance training, obviously cardio and stretching and balance training. And you've got it basically, it's the same as for young adults, <laughs> but you've just got to add in more emphasis on balance training for falls prevention. Uh, and that's, you know, balance training, balance is a specific skill. So like your ability to balance lying on your back on a foam roller, lifting one leg in the air, doesn't improve your ability to stand on one leg. Like they're different skills. So to to get good at balance to prevent falls, you need to put yourself in situations where you, you know, where your balance can help you prevent a fall. Like, so, you know, stand on one leg, walk up steps, walk down steps, you know, um, et cetera stand still, close your eyes, those kinds of things. Um, and so, though, you know, there's good research showing that those kinds of exercises, which are low load, you know, do prevent falls and prevent fractures and prevent deaths because um, older adults, you know, over 75 have a vastly increased risk of death if they break a hip or something, they go into hospital, you know, a lot of them don't come out because they get complications mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Um so that's really important, low load stuff there, but it's all, it's standing balance work that they need. Yeah, and then absolutely. they need load for bone density, for, for retention and, and rebuilding of muscle mass. You know, they need to do squats, they need to do push-ups. they need to, you know, they need to get on a reformer and do a teaser or a, you know, like a, a, a leg pull or a whatever, you know, and if they've got osteoporosis, then maybe loaded flexion teaser is not a good plan, but they, they need to do some ab work and some back work and some leg work and some arm work. You know, so yeah, I think, um, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, searching my memory banks. I'm, I'm trying to think like, when would the pre-Pilates stuff be, you know, really useful? I think, well, definitely we talked about post-surgery. Yes, definitely has yep. a place there, but mm-hmm. it's like the first two weeks, first three weeks, you know, and depending on the nature of your injury, maybe it's like six weeks, but it's like, it's not two years, you know, that you're doing it for. Um, and you know, maybe I can, I can imagine, like, I'm trying to think like, okay, somebody comes in, they're very fearful, they're very deconditioned, they're very anxious about, you know, Pilates, whatever, start them out gently, let them walk out going, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, I can see a benefit of starting out gently. But then again, I think of something like the Liftmore trial, which was a trial they did with, um, postmenopausal osteoporotic women in Australia in Griffith University here. And they, these were just like your, your, your grandma, you know, like these were just like the lovely old dears with, you know, blue hair and floral print dresses and all of, all the rest of it, you know, and, and they had these women deadlifting, bench pressing, you know, barbell back squatting, you know, and they, they worked them up to it. You know, they started out with just the bar and they taught them how to do it properly. And they, you know, it's all of those things, but they didn't start them out with, with, knee floats, they started out with, they started them out with deadlifts with just the bar, you know, and then they added weights to it progressively. So I think you, and it was all under supervision of exercise physiologists. So I'm not saying you should get your osteoporotic clients in and, you know, get them <laughs> you know, deadlifting, but, but, um, I think, I think, I guess what, what I take from that is that, you know, these women were completely sedentary beforehand. They weren't experienced at exercise. They weren't motivated. They weren't like, oh, great, I want to go deadlift or anything. They were just like participating in a trial because they'd been diagnosed with osteoporosis and their doctor told them it would be good, presumably, to do this. So I think the the assumption that older adults, one, well, the assumption that older adults, you know, aren't safe doing load is incorrect. They need it. And the assumption that they don't want to do it, I I guess, you know, I guess I, I, I'm challenging that 
in my mind. That, you know, I think like older adults, why can't an older adult do a teaser? You know, or whatever. whatever. Why can't an older adult just do a normal class with everyone else? I've got um, an 80-year-old client who um, he's, he's great. He's, he's actually, he comes with his wife and they are super. They can do, you know, there's things we avoid for various reasons of their own anatomy. But at the end of the day, we do reformer, we do some chair, we do some tower and they move. But we do the, we do the specific exercises that, that they have their own particular things they need to do. And then apart from that, we, we'd move them. I've got I think, there's a, I think it's, a, it's a use of language, Raph. I think it's, it's the way people use language, fear-based language for elderly people. Yeah. Oh, you know, for anybody of, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. fear reflection, fear of, you know. Um, so when I used to be, <clears throat> sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. When I was a teacher trainer, I had, um, I was doing a reformer exam for somebody and they'd omitted an entire portion of the reformer repertoire out. So I just questioned them. I said, why have you missed out? It was a stomach massage sequence. And I said, you know, oh, you're I just out of interest. Out. Sucks. P- pardon? That sucks. That's why they left it out. <laughs> well, that, their, their response was, well, it's, it's just not very functional. And... <sighs> You know, there's a there's a big thing in the UK at the moment about the mat work, parts of the mat work not being functional. So that's what's, why people aren't functional? teaching part. Exactly. I mean, the 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 argument I had was, you know what? I I used to strap two pieces of wood to my feet and slide down a mountain. That and, and that's not really you know functional either, is it? Doing a repetitive sport like tennis where you're using the same arm repeatedly, that's not really very functional. But you know what? It's fun. You know, it's fun. And I think I think sometimes we're we're in danger of stopping people doing things because of what how we are frightened as teachers because maybe our knowledge isn't deep enough to know how to handle clients. And that's mm. what I found often happened with me was that I'd have a client and they'd come in and I'd be a bit scared about moving them. <clears throat> if I'm being really honest, and I'd be a bit, you know, you know, what if I break them? Mm. You know, I've, that been, I've, been, to- I've, been, I've been told that this, the, old people shouldn't do this, that and the other. And I'd go, oh, yep. but you know, what if I put her on the reformer and I do rowing with her and it hurts her and it's my fault? Yeah. Um, so what I did was I went and got myself a little bit more understanding. I, you know, I went and took action on the things that I knew I needed to know and to give myself more confidence as a teacher so that I could then give my clients confidence. And yeah. I think that's the thing is don't, I was, I'm going to put my hand up in the air and go, I was not progressing my clients because I was frightened to. Oh, I'm my hands up too. I've totally been there. And and I think and I think that's why this conversation is so important because if you are that person out there who is like you and I were, ask, ask for help. You know, I had a, a client come in yesterday and they they developed a condition that I'd never fucking heard of. 
<clears throat> and I said to them, you know what? I've absolutely no idea what that is. So I need to find out <laughs> rather than bullshit and go, oh, well, let's just carry on. And the other thing that I'm going to, this, this is going a bit off topic, but um, elderly people, so red flags. Okay. This, this, um, I think this is a really important little story to put in here. Um, I had an, I have an elderly client. I have quite a lot of elderly clients. Um, they're brilliant. And she had a hip replacement earlier this year. And she, we were working via Zoom. She'd always come to the studio. We'd always done loads of reform, a chair. She was really strong, but she needed a hip replacement. But for a year we'd been on Zoom because we were in mid-pandemic. <clears throat> and um, so she was seeing me via Zoom for Pilates and we were doing the best we could to keep her going as everybody did in the pandemic, using balls, bands, weights. But she also had a PT and she, uh, a personal trainer, and she used TRX. You know, I've never used a TRX, but you know, the thing that you sling over and you, oh, sorry. Um, Suspension trainer. Uh, yeah. And um, the day before she was due to go in for her hip replacement, she had she had one last session with him and she didn't put the TRX up properly and she fell and landed on her back. Didn't say anything, didn't tell the doctors, went in, had full hip replacement. Uh, I, I, I wasn't able to go and see her because of pandemic, but I sent her flowers. We spoke on the phone. And then however many months later, she was told that she was able to start Pilates again. So we met her um, via Zoom on the Wednesday morning. And she told me what I've just told you. And she said, my, but my back still hurts. And I said to her, so you've been through a full hip replacement, rehab for full hip replacement, and your back still hurts. I said to her, look, I'm sorry, we're not moving today. This is, a, this, to me, this is a massive, massive red flag. And you need to go to your doctor and get your back looked at because your back shouldn't still be hurting after all this time. She went to the doctor and she had a wedge fracture in her spine. So I think it's, it's being aware of what we can do with elderly clients, but also knowing what our red flags are. Yeah. Because that that for me was a real it, it kind of reassured me that for twenty two years I must have actually been doing all right. <laughs> yeah. Well, pain pain that onset from a from a trauma and hadn't resolved, you know, several weeks later. That's that is a red flag. Um, and, but I I would like to. It's interesting to me that in that um, episode, the the actual you know cause of that injury wasn't improper training. It was just improper setup of the equipment. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and actually that, you know, we've talked about this before on the show that actually the vast majority of injuries in fitness facilities are related to people just dropping shit on themselves or yeah. falling off things or, you know, it's like, it's not, most of them are not people doing exercises wrong. It's mostly just people just dropping a dumbbell on their foot or you know, yeah. knocking yeah. someone off a treadmill or something like that. Yeah. Um, um, uh, actually there's, uh, there is an, a fantastic study I love called uh, High Intensity Strength Training in Nonagenarians um, uh, from uh, 1990. And they got um, a bunch of these uh, nurse, institutionalized nursing home residents, like frail 90 plus year old male <laughs> nursing home residents. And, you know, these were just guys, I can just imagine them sitting there watching whatever was on daytime television in 1990, you know, with their like stick thin thighs that you could, you know, <laughs> touch your finger and your thumb around their thigh bone. 
Um, and they did eight weeks of high intensity resistance training and their strength gains averaged 174%. That's fucking in, awesome. In eight weeks, mid thigh we muscle this? area increased 9%. Ev- um, walking speed increased 48%. Like this, these are like, this is the definition of your sort of super frail elderly, uh, you know, at you know, 90 plus, the average age was like 93 or something in this. That is, this that is, that is amazing. Yeah. Every, do you know what? Every, every nursing home should have, this is where we need standards. Why yeah. can't we get a standard that means that these people Put a in these in the nursing, nursing homes home all do yeah. this? It'd be yeah. amazing. So, so I guess uh, if you're a Pilates instructor out there and you're you're concerned or anxious about working with older adults, I think osteoporosis is a real thing. And if someone has a diagnosis of osteoporosis, whether they're older or younger, you know, oste- you need to modify things for osteoporosis and avoid loaded flexion and in range of bouncing things like that. But if just the fact that someone's old, okay, if we put aside a diagnosis of osteoporosis or whatever else. Just the fact that someone's old doesn't mean that they need to train differently to someone who's young, apart from probably adding a little bit more balance work. They just need to do the same things that someone who's 20, whatever their physical capacity is, right? If you've got a fit 20-year-old, you work them as a fit person. If you've got a fit 80-year-old, you work them as, as, you know, per their fitness level. If you've got an unfit 20-year-old, you give them the appropriate exercise for an unfit 20-year-old, you know? It should be based on fitness level and any diagnosis that they have not based on their age. Yeah. So, great, yeah. So, great advice. Um, all right. So, yeah, I think there is a massive amount of fear out there. And, you know, I think, you know, funnily, and, and, you know, we've talked about this a bunch on the show, but I think it's, 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 even though we've talked about it twice or three times, it's still a problem. So we should talk about it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, you know, I think now, and maybe, you know, if you're listening to this, maybe this doesn't apply to you. I don't know. Maybe it applies less to you than it used to. Maybe it still applies to you. You know, you tell me, reach out to me, let me know on social media. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, we do use a lot of words in, in Pilates around safety. Um, you know, we I, I hear the word safety. I see the word safety a lot in my social media feed, in people teaching. Um, and I see just, you know, ideas of like proper technique. And now, I, I do believe there's such a thing as proper technique when you're doing a teaser. Like, you know, not that anything's you're wrong or if you do it a different way, I don't give a shit how you do your teasers. But like if you're learning to do a teaser and you're looking at return to life to controlology and you're going, okay, I want to do a teaser. It's like, well, he does it a certain way. And there are specific instructions there about the shape of the spine and the knees being locked and the arms and legs being parallel and all, all the rest of it. So so I believe there is such a thing as proper technique when you're, but when you're doing an exercise, but only in the sense that, well, if you're trying to do it the way Joseph did it, he did it a certain way, and if you if you choose to define that as the proper technique, well, that's the proper technique, and you can strive for that. And if you prefer to follow Romana's technique, where the chest is more lifted and whatever, it's like great, fa- fantastic, more power to you. And if you don't give a fuck about either of those, awesome, <laughs> you know, more power to you. But. So, so I think you know. I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's bad to 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 strive for a particular technique. Um, I think that's part of the benefit of Pilates is striving to move in a certain way, which helps you get into a flow state because as you're working mm-hmm. through the movements, it gets you deep into concentration, and that's you know a massive part of the. I think the mental health benefits that people get from Pilates. It takes you out of your th- you know thinking and into just being physically. Um, 
but I, I have a big problem with with language around technique that imp, that implies that it's safer or less safe to do it a certain way, um, because it's just not true, and it and it and it promotes fear, mm-hmm. and yep. even when you're not saying you know overtly, oh, you should be fearful, you know, be careful. When you just when you say, hey, let's keep nice and safe, make sure you keep your pelvis, you know, stable when you, you know, when you lift your leg. It's like, well, the flip side of that, you know, the 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 dark underbelly underneath that rock, right? When you pull that out, it's all safe and stable on the top. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's underneath that's unsafe and unstable, you know? Yeah. Keep your pelvis stable. Well, unstable pelvis is something you sounds like something you don't really want to have, you know, like an unstable pelvis. That sounds like a really fucking terrible thing yeah. to have. So, and clients can, and we have good research on this, that clients take like some offhand remark that their healthcare professional, fitness professional made a decade ago and they embody yeah. that and they, they, they make meaning out of that and they turn that into their identity and they, they, you know, come in and they'll tell you, you know, oh, I can't bend. And that you, if you ask them why, yeah. often it's like, oh, my doctor said, oh, when did your doctor say that? Oh, 10 years ago. Oh, what was the context? Oh, well, I said my back's a bit sore today. And the doctor said, well, maybe just, you know, don't do what, don't aggra- don't do what aggravates it for a couple of days. And maybe they just totally internalized that, misunderstood it. Maybe it wasn't the doctor's fault. But yeah, I think this, even small words that we use can, seemingly small words can have a massive impact on our, on our clients. Language is hugely important with, with us as teachers. And I think we can't underestimate how a passing comment can land with somebody and we have to be really mm. careful with, with what you're, exactly what you're saying. You know, roll over onto, on, onto one side carefully. It's like, well, what happens if I roll onto one side uncarefully? Am I going to, you know, <laughs> give myself a wedge fracture? Am I going to, you know, exactly. what's going to happen? Is the world going to end if I roll onto my side uncarefully? <laughs> when after I had, after I had my, um, uh, skiing accident, my physio said to me, um, that I shouldn't run, which I just laughed and went, I don't run anyway. But he said, he told me that I wasn't built to run. <laughs> I know. That is wrong. That is so wrong. Do you know, do you know why that's wrong? I mean, tell, do, you, do you have a view on why that's wrong? I've got such a view on why it's wrong. Like, yeah, because, it, because it's disabling me. It's telling me that I can't run. It's like, what happens if my kid goes running towards a pond? I'm going to go, well, better not run and catch him. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just absurd because every human being is built to run. I'm probably more prone to um, my knees hurting if I run as a, you know, repeatedly or if I become a triathlete, but, oh yeah. Human beings, are, that, that's, our, that's our one evolutionary superpower, running. Like we are persistence hunters. Like you know, why are we of all the of all the other apes? You know, why are we of all the other primates? Why are we hairless? Right? Why why can't we climb trees? Why do we have you know feet that aren't prehensile? We can't grab yeah, onto things. Position um, of the big toe. We walk upright. You know, so all of these we have bipedal gait. We are hairless. We have sweat glands. You know, most other animals don't have don't sweat, uh, or don't have anywhere near as many sweat glands as we do. Uh, and we have bipedal gait, and all of these things are adaptations for endurance running. And uh, there's plenty of evidence in uh, present-day hunter-gatherers that they um, hunt by what's called persistence hunting, where basically if you're a, I don't know, and I'm going to mess up the names here, so please forgive me, it's unintentional, but if you're a Kalahari bush person, you're you know walking across the plains in Africa somewhere, and you see a gazelle, right, 
the run up to it and the gazelle just sprints off, you know, it's half a mile away in about five seconds and you can't catch up to it. But then the gazelle gets tired and starts panting and has to stop and eat some grass and you just keep jogging, jogging, jogging. And then the gazelle runs away again and you just keep jogging, jogging, jogging. Eventually the gazelle just collapses from heat exhaustion. You just calmly jog up, spear it to death and eat it, you know. And and that's how our ancestors over hundreds of thousands of years have evolved to to catch animals that are, you know, faster, stronger, have bigger teeth, bigger claws, you know. All the gorillas are something like eight times stronger than us, you know. Like we don't have good claws, we don't have good teeth, we don't have armor, we don't, we're not fast, we, we can't climb trees, we can't swim very well, like we can't run very fast, like we suck, you know, we're hopeless. But what we can do, our one superpower, we can outrun a horse, we can outrun a dog, we can outrun all manner of, all you know, gazelles, all kinds of things over distance, over distance. So you are a human, you are built to run, you are you are designed could, by millions of years of evolution. I could hunt down a coffee really easily. um here's an interesting fact for you that um it might not be interesting i don't know but when when so horses are fight fight or flight animals so you're talking about the antelope thing so when a horse is uh aware of a predator they run but they actually only run for a third of a mile before they stop because what they do is they stop and they reassess yeah because if they were to keep running exactly what you've just said can happen is that they might run into another predator then have to keep running. Right. So they, they run for a third of a mile and then they stop huh. and they look around, reassess. And then if there's no one else there, they'll just carry on grazing. Yeah. So it's been measured. Hmm. Fascinating. Horsey um, tip of the day for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, all right. So I, I'm not sure if we've solved, uh, you know, fear of movement, but I think hopefully we've uh, given you something to think about um, if you listen to this about older adults, you know, not being as fragile as, as I think many of us were led to believe. And you do have to take diagnoses like osteoporosis seriously, um, arthritis less so, um, but osteo- osteoporosis definitely does increase fracture risk. You've got to avoid flexion and, you know, bend and like I wouldn't do things like saw or roll up or teaser or roll over or those types of things. Um, but I would do lots of planks and side planks and leg pulls and things like that to work on the abs and the back muscles, but just not in flexion. Um, uh, but I think, you know, oftentimes, you know, we we compartmentalize this idea of safety in, within Pilates. And I was actually talking with um, the manager of a large health club chain um, here in Australia. I'm going to do a presentation there uh, sometime later this year. And um we were talking about this and how in a Pilates class, like we have this idea of, you know, keep safe, keep your spine neutral, move your knee two inches to the right, two inches to the left, keep your pelvis stable. But then that exact same customer in this gym chain, you know, walks out of the Pilates class, walks over to the squat rack, you know, puts a hundred kilos on the bar yeah, exactly, <laughs> and, exactly. and starts squatting. And so, and we have this same thing with our clients. I think often in Pilates, if you don't, even if you don't work in a gym where we're like, oh, you know, pick up the one kilo hand weights, right? But then- the client walks out of the studio, picks up their 15 kilo child, yeah. you know, exactly. <laughs> puts them on one hip. You know? This is why it's that phrase, isn't it? Activities of daily living. It's like, what do they do when they're not doing Pilates? There's right. no point babying somebody in a Pilates class if they're going to fuck off and, you know, and, you know, like you say, pick up, you know, I've got twins, pick up two 15 kg kids, you know, 
we have to focus on what are their goals. If their goal, I've got a client at the moment who is desperate to get back playing football and is in his late fifties. So we're working around that. So me getting him just to lie on his back and just do, you know, can you open your knee three quarters of an inch isn't going to help him because he, he needs to be on a, on a football field doing quick turns, running and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So mm. that's what we're working towards. So you have to, you, you, it's goal setting. Okay. It, mm. Isn't it? It's looking at what is your client's goal. If and your I client's think, goal is to lie on their back and open their leg three inches, you've nailed it. <laughs> well, I think that's where the, the where the concept of functional movement comes in. And I think that's the only, I think I, I do think there is such a thing as functional movement, but I think there's, I have a very, very narrow definition of what's functional. And so if your client, you know, in his late fifties wants to get back to playing soccer, which when you say football, that's what you mean, right? What, yeah. I, what would I would call soccer? Soccer, sorry. Yes. Yeah, so, so you're sprinting, you know, you're doing 20-yard sprints and direction change and, you know, kicking the ball, which presumably needs a lot of hip flexion and dexterity in your feet and stuff. And so I know a little bit about soccer and people tend to uh, injure their hamstrings a lot. Um, yes. People tend yep. to injure their knees, their ACLs yep. and things like that a lot. Um, and so you need strong hamstrings and you need, you know, str- you know strong um, muscles around the knee and the hip to um, protect the knee. And you also just need to practice those movements. So if yes. you, you know, so, you know, what's functional to play soccer? Well, hamstring strengthening at high speed, because you need to decelerate the hamstrings at high speed. Uh, you know, of, of course, quads and glutes and all of the, all of the <laughs> leg muscles. And you need to practice doing the thing you want to get good at. So yeah, if he wants to sprint around a soccer field and change direction all the time, well, he's got to start out doing whatever he can. And I'm not telling you this because I know you already know it, but, you know, for the listeners that, you know, he's got to start out doing whatever version of that he's currently capable of. You know, maybe he walks around the witch's hats in the Pilates studio with some direction change. Maybe he starts, maybe he can't even do that. Maybe he starts out with some side lunges, you know, or whatever he's currently can do, which is, you know, direction change based. And you build him up to, you know, with the end goal, the end of the progression yeah. is sprinting sideways around a soccer field, kicking a ball, you know? And so I think, you know, in that instance, well, a sidestep up on the, ch- on the chair is if you're working someone back, let's say he's got an ACL injury. I don't know what his injury is, but let's say he's got an ACL injury where you, you need to avoid rotation and sideways movement initially, because that's the mechanism, mechanism of injury, but you need to get him back to that. If he's going to get back on the field without blowing his knee out again on the first game, so, you know, in that situation, like a sidestep up on the chair becomes very functional because it's working, it's challenging the capacity of that joint that is directly related to his rehabilitation. And then maybe side splits on the reformer, you know, legs in springs, legs in straps, all of these things become functional because they're introducing challenge in rotation and all of that to that joint. But at a certain point, if you keep just doing sidesteps ups and legs in springs, there's a gap there between doing that yeah. and running sideways on a soccer field. You know, they're not the same skill, right? So once you have that capacity in the tissue and the, and the motor control to control your leg and your knee in, you know, in straps and on the pedal of the chair and on whatever it is, it's like, okay, well, you need to progress beyond that and you need to get upright and you need to start jogging and you need to start running and you need to start cutting and changing direction and you need to do that while someone throws a ball at you from weird directions, you know, like it needs to start to look exactly like right. the thing that he's training to get back to. That's yeah. functional. Yeah. 
And you can't do all of those things in a, in Pilates studio. Obviously, they're not all possible to do. Well, not in mine because I've got such a short ceiling height. I can't throw balls uh, in here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we we um we don't have a premises anymore. We we we're all online, but we used to have. You know, we teach ACL rehab um, as part of our diploma, and we used to have great big high ceiling, lots of wobble boards yeah. and BOSUs and balls to throw at people and all kinds of, you know, stand on one leg, juggle tennis balls or whatever. Like there's lots of fun things you can do for balance yeah. um, and, and sideways stability. But, you know, there's no reason you can't go across the road to the park or whatever, you know. Um, so... Well, I'm slightly disappointed that we didn't have more areas of disagreement, but there you go. We can have a, we can have a row if you want. Let's argue about something. Come on. <laughs> no, I don't want to have a row. But I was, I'm, I'm I was always up for a fight. I was optimistic that we might have a you know uh, have a um, what's the word uh, a, an amicable disagreement about something. Um, what would, uh, what did you think we were going to amicably di- amic- I can't even say it amicably disagree about. Well, I, I was quite hopeful about those. You you were going to say, you insist that the, everybody who teaches Pilates should know how to do the 34 ex- contrology exercises. I think they should know them. I don't think they should necessarily be able to do them. Well, I there you go. We, we can disagree on that then. That's awesome. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should. I think, you, I think that the Return to Life, uh, the book, uh, should be required reading for every single Pilates teacher. It should be on your bookshelf and you should be aware of it. You should have read it at least once in your career. I recommend it. I mean, you know, obviously I recommend it. We teach it. I actually in, you know, force all of our students to buy it. <laughs> but um, so, uh, but I, 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 I don't think, I, I don't think that if you're, if you're out there and you have never read it and you've got no interest in reading it, I don't have a problem with that. Go on, disagree with I me. do. <laughs> you know what? You can pick it up, you can read it, and you can put the damn thing down, never pick it up or read it again. But I just I just think you you, you if you want it's his name, Pilates mm-hmm. is is a person, you know, and I think that's the thing, is and and that is his work. You, I think you should read it burn it, then do whatever else. Actually, don't burn it. Just pass it on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. But you should have read it at some point in your teaching career. Okay. Yeah, fair cop. Like I think, um, I guess the reason I'm I'm hesitant to say I think people should, you know, all polite instructors should know those 34 exercises is because it feels to me like we're then saying, oh, there's a standard, you know, and here's my arbitrary standard that I think, you know, I think everyone – like I think people should know those 34 exercises. That's why we teach them in our course, right? But I'm hesitant to say, oh, and therefore everyone should do that. But I guess, you know, when you say it that way, like, well, actually Pilates is called Pilates because it's named after Joseph Pilates. And, yeah. and You're honouring him. You're honouring his work. Yeah. Well, I don't even know about honouring. I think like for me it's just like, well, the reason I think it's important and the reason we teach those exercises and use that book as a textbook is – because I think like, well, however the heck you teach now, you know, if you teach nothing resembling, you know, what Joseph taught, I'm totally fine with that. I've got no problem at all with it. I think it's awesome. I'm very excited by the way the Pilates industry is, you know, evolving at the moment. I think it's, you know, great things are happening. But um, I think there is a value in understanding the roots and where it came from. 
It's like, I guess, you know, I guess it's sort of like, okay, if you're Picasso and you don't paint in a very representational way, it's like Picasso still knew how to actually sketch, like he could actually draw. Yes, he was know. a very, very accomplished draftsman, definitely. Right. And and he just chose not to do it that way. He chose to do it a different way. And I think, so I guess I, I, guess I kind of see the value in that, but I guess I'm really, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that people should know yeah convince me you know to, to use an, another analogy let, let's let's go um i'm going to be very english here let's go shakespeare okay so let's take romeo and juliet very very specific play that play was turned into an amazing movie by baz Luhrmann. okay i hated that movie Actually, you know what? I'm going to be fucking honest. I fucking hated it as well. I thought it was crap. Um, and it's one of my, and it's, I, I just thought, I, I wasn't going to say it, but. In fact, I can't recall anything I've seen of Baz Luhrmann's that I liked, that I liked. Did he do Moulin Rouge as well? I hated Moulin that too. Rouge, yeah. But you, uh, you can watch um, that movie as a standalone movie without ever having known Shakespeare's original play. However, mm. if you only watch Baz Luhrmann's version of Romeo and Juliet. You're missing out the Queen Mab speech. You're missing out um, a, a, a lot of Mercutio's character is cut out. Um, you can tell I love Romeo and Juliet. Um, and the the nurse, um, a lot of her uh, amazing speeches and bawdiness is cut out. It, it's become a very different creature. But you can appreciate that movie as a movie, okay? However, if you were then to go back and read Shakespeare's original Romeo and Juliet and you saw the beauty in the words that um, had been chosen to be omitted from that movie, you'd go, why the fuck did they cut that out? It was so great. But the two are equally pieces of literature, pieces of mm -hmm. art. One's a movie, one's a play. They're equally valid within their own genre. But one's the original. But is it just now? I, I'm not tiring you with this brush, but I'm fifty. I'm fifty-one actually, and I'm wary of becoming, you know, one of those like oh, back in my day we had to walk ten miles. <laughs> you know, the kids, kids today, they don't understand. When you I know. was a lass. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, I, 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 I think I, I remember reading. Um, I, I can never find the book. I, my dad's got every Thomas Hardy book ever written in his bookshelf, but I just, I've looked through them all, I can't find it. Maybe it wasn't Thomas Hardy. Anyway, there's a start of this book. I always thought it was like the return of the native or something, but there's, there's a scene in some Yorkshire, you know, pub in the backwoods of beyond in like 1830 or something. It's like some tiny brick and, you know, mud daub, peat smoke filled, you know, tallow candle lit, you know, place where that is just, I can just imagine the villagers there sitting there going like, Oh, yeah, the youth of today, they don't understand. Back in our day, we did honest days work, honest days pay. You know, they're newfangled inventions these days. You're you know, in the wrong county. That's not a Yorkshire uh, accent. Isn't it? <laughs> what, what, what accent's that? I think that's more sort of like a, 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 a Cornwall-y kind of Cornwall. accent. Well, maybe, well, maybe, the book maybe the book took place in Cornwall then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and uh, so I just think like it's – you know, since the dawn of time, I can imagine two, like, you know, Paleolithic people sitting on a rock outside a cave going, oh, these kids are today, today, they don't know the know? born. Yeah, yeah <laughs> with, their, with their fire and their wheel, you know, <laughs> back in our day, 
you know. <laughs> we just ate our meat raw. No. You, know. we, you could change the title. It's called Pilates Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so I, I guess I'm just worried about, because I, I do notice that I just think, you know, all the music, my daughter, she's 15, all the music that she listens to just sounds like shit to me. And, you know, but I'm aware that, you know, when I was 15, probably all the music I sound, I listened to sounded like shit to my parents and thus it went and thus it went. And so, you know, so I, I, I'm concerned that I don't want to be like, oh, well, you know, I learned such and such. So everyone should learn it, you know. Yeah. You know what? There there may be a time in a hundred years that no one gives a fuck who Pilates was. You know, they really don't. That, that it may well be that way, that that's the way it evolves. Everybody comes so sick of this conversation that it just moves on completely. You know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe in a hundred years, well, they'll be having a conversation saying like, oh, I can't believe they haven't, you know, read the, like the, the, you know, the original work by Anula Myberg, like her, have you seen her like weird, weird reformer class that she does? Oh, she does. It's like, she does the, she's the Picasso of Pilates. She does, weird shit um and i say that with total love and respect and i know that she would <laughs> appreciate it um so she she actually is classically trained she knows all of the things but she teaches yeah who she's got literally got a class that she calls weird reformer um and they just do fun stuff like and so she's like the picasso of play she, it's non-representational pilates i think um and I'm imagining that in a hundred years, people will be going, oh, I can't believe you don't, you know, cleave to the, you know, to the tenets of Anula and, and the orthodoxy there. And, you know, and, and Anula's roots will be lost in the midst of time. No one will remember there was someone called Joseph Pilates or, you know, Ramana or any of that. And it'll be like, oh, the great Anula or the great Picasso or whatever. And we'll never remember the pre-Raphaelites or the whoever, you know, um, whoever came before, you know. So maybe, yep. maybe, it, maybe it will. Maybe it will. Maybe maybe in 50 years, you know, my daughter will be having this conversation going, oh, you know, those good old like techno music of the 2020s, you know, that was quality music. The shit they play today is, you know, it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know where, I don't know where this industry is heading, Raph. I really don't. But I just, I, do you know what? I, I, I just want people to enjoy teaching. And I think at the end of the day, that that's what this is. It's a job, isn't it? It's our job. And I think we put so much passion into our job that it becomes something we all we all care so much. We all give a shit. And at the end of the day, it's a fucking job. And it becomes this this sort of um I don't know what's the word. It's 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 almost like it's more than a job. It's it's a yeah. It's a calling. A, it's a, a vocation. way of life. It's yeah. it's and 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 I'm not sure it should be. I think it's it's, it's our job. You know, may, maybe we should all just calm the fuck down and and stop beating each other up about what we do or don't teach, how we don't, how we teach. As long as our clients are happy, moving, and not getting wedge fractures because they've done loaded flexion um, when they shouldn't have done. You know, who gives a fuck? I can't believe I just said that. Well. Um- <laughs> I'm with you that we should shouldn't beat each you other edit that up. Out? <laughs> nah, we don't edit. Um, I'm with I'm with you that we sh- we shouldn't beat each other up. I'm wish with you that we should not take ourselves too seriously. I I, I don't agree that if we should treat it like just a job though. I think like that's why people get into this, you know, 
um, profession is because they have a deep love and passion and calling and need to help people and, you know, want to make a difference. And I think that those are all noble things and things worth pursuing. But I think that, I think that in essentials, I, I deeply agree that we need to not get too attached to the particulars mm. of how we do it. And, you know, all of those things that, you know, most of us love about Pilates, how it makes us feel, the difference it makes to our body, the difference it makes for our clients, the way we feel when our clients, you know, have, you know, wins, all of those things, that satisfaction that comes, the excitement of learning, understanding how the body works, all of those things, none of those are specific to how you do the teaser, you know, no. or or whether you point your toes or flex your no. toes or or whether your pelvis stays still when your knee moves out from your body or whatever. So no. I think we need to we need to hold on tightly but let go lightly, you know, with those things and and, you know, update. But but that doesn't we the essential things that we we don't change, you know, are like, you know, the the passion for helping people and for moving and for you know, helping people get stronger and more flexible and more empowered in their bodies. And, you know, like all of those yeah. things I think are, are timeless, you know, as long as the human organism exists, like until we're just like sentient, you know, gas floating around between the stars or whatever in the year 90,000, you know, as long as we've got a physical body, we're going to need exercise yeah. and, and you know, all of those same things. So I, I think those are timeless things, but I think that, the knowledge of, you know, how to best obtain those results. You know, it's like, okay, Shakespeare, brilliant, right? But if he was writing today, probably I imagine he wouldn't use a quill pen and nib and handwrite all of his things. He'd probably voice dictate it, I'm guessing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, well, you can keep the essentials, right? But you can update the technology, yeah. you know, of how you deliver it, you know. And yeah. I think that's 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 what we all you know that's what we strive to help people do on this podcast, and you know I mean that's why we're having this conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think and enjoy enjoy teaching, and just enjoy what you do. And if you don't know how to help a client, ask for help. Yeah, don't, don't and, pretend you don't know. Um, don't and, you do know? Sorry. And if you're out there teaching pre Pilates, right? you know, whatever you call it, if you call it that or something else, if you're out there teaching knee floats and toe taps and whatever, we fucking love you. You're awesome. You know, you're totally awesome. And if you want to keep teaching that, I'll high five you till the cows come home. You're awesome. And if you want to progress your clients, you're not sure how to do it, just like get them to straighten their leg out a bit. You know, just try something a bit harder, you know, get them to lift their head off the floor while they do it, while they do it. Or like just yeah. add a little bit of load, see what happens. If they don't explode, try Try adding a bit more next time, you know, and just yeah. go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And like you said, pre-Pilates is doing something. If your clients are coming back week after week to your classes, you are doing something good. You're, you're doing something. You're helping people. Maybe you could help them even more, though, if you got them to do their first ever push-up or pull-up or one-legged squat. Just don't put them on the monkey bars. Monkey no. dangerous. <laughs> be careful how you hook up the TRX. This is this has been a great chat, Julie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, and I and I hope it's helped people. Yeah, I hope so too. I'm 
But, you know, I'm sure they'll. I'm sure they'll tell me. I get a lot of DMs. So yeah, tell me, mm. did this help or not? Okay, bye. Bye. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.